أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولاه وتدعوده إلى يوم الدين This is the third key of how to connect with the Quran and let me introduce it this way if you say something or if you read something in a book or an article definitely the writer of this text had a, an essential objective in mind. He has a target audience whom he's talking to. So unless you fall within this target audience, the text could be either above you or below you. <laughs> it's either above you so you understand it, or it's below you so you trivialize it. You just like despise it. Sometimes a text has more, one, more than one objective. It aims at telling a direct message and telling other messages to other individuals as well. Yes. So if we say, for example, that we, you find in a book, a book saying that people should, lo should learn how to walk before they run. Literally, you teach a child how to walk before they learn how to run. But it could mean in life that when you start any project, you should learn how to take it slowly before you say, I'm taking it uh, comprehensively. With this in mind, if we are able to understand the objective of the text, you can have a dual text, a dual objective text, like a text with two objectives, or three, or four, or five, if you understand the objectives of the text, you will be able to connect with it. So a dual objective text aims at delivering two messages in the same wording. Three objective text aims at delivering three messages. So it's important to observe all of these objectives when reading a text. And I'm, I'll give you an example here. Surah Al-Duha. We all recite Surah Al-Duha. Al-Duha wal And there is something amazing about this surah. Is in this surah, each surah of the Quran contains like a, a case, introduction, display of the case, or let's call it making the claims, proving the claims, conclusion. Every surah in the Quran, without fail, it has that. It's like a court case in hand. Introduction, preamble, and then claim, refutation, closure, wassalamu alaikum. So Surah Al-Duha has that in a very systematic way. 11 ayat, as you can see, right? Two of them are introduction. Wal-Duha, wal-Layli idha saj. And then the other nine, claims, proofs, responsibilities. Three claims, three proofs, and three responsibilities. Wal-Duha, wal-Layli idha saj. What is that? By the daylight and the night that comes after. Someone might ask, what's the point of this introduction? How is the introduction related to the case? Remember that this surah was revealed when the Prophet ﷺ had recess in revelation for a while. And then there was no revelation for some time. The Prophet ﷺ thought it has been abandoned. So the surah came down and said, what? Normally, when the day comes, what follows it? Night. So the crack of the dawn was like the revelation. And the recess in revelation was what? The night. Well, lady is a sajjah. When the night comes, 
And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, by these two states that we have revealed Quran unto you, and then it stopped for a while, we have not left you. Don't think that this is... And in fact, what is coming next, meaning the second now revelation is coming back, this will be better than the previous one. Why? The previous occasion. Because this will be continuous till the end of your life. While the previous one was just like, a, like an outburst. Right. So three things are, three claims here. One, مَا وَدَّعَكَ رَبُّكَ وَمَا قَالَ Your Lord has not huh, left you. وَدَعَ in Arabic. وَدَعَ huh? in Arabic means what? To give someone as a wadi'ah. وَدَعَ in Arabic means to bid farewell. And normally when you bid farewell to some, someone, it means you're leaving them into the trust of somebody else. وَمَا قَالَ قَالَ means to distance. He has not distanced you, nor he has left you into somebody else. He has not left you into somebody else, nor he has left you alone. Right? What's the proof of that? Ayah number three. What's the proof of ayah number three? أَلَمْ يَجِدْكَ يَتِيمًا فَآوَى Ayah number six. So the proof of ayah number three is what? Hasn't he found you an orphan and he took care of you? Because an orphan can either be left to someone or left alone. But he says, well, you are an orphan, we took care of you. We didn't leave you to anyone, nor we left you alone. We took care of you. So the first claim is what? Your Lord has not left you alone or to someone. What's the proof? He has found you an orphan and he took care of you. So what should happen? What's the conclusion of this introduction? Don't suppress the, the orphan. Take care of the orphan. Number nine. So one, two, three. number four. Like the, the next is better than the first one. The next stage of revelation will be better. The akhira is better. Future is better than the past. Let's put it this way. Future is better than the past. What's the proof of that? وَوَجَدَكَ ضَالًّا فَهَدًا You were misguided, he guided you. That not that better? That's a proof. When you want to provide someone some assurance that he is on the, traveling on the right path, you say, look at yourself now, look at yourself two years ago. Are you the same person? No, I'm not the same person. Well, you're getting better, isn't it? Possibly you're comparing yourself to somebody else. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. You have completely different situations and completely different circumstances. Compare yourself to yourself. When the when you one of the the proof one of the uh, uh, conditions for making a, a proper graph is that you have a static reference point. What are you comparing what to what? There's something um, again. You know, I was talking about yesterday. That there's something called uh, in in any research. There has to be a background. What can I hold the person accountable to? You set these, these principles, isn't it? For example, uh, Rudwan can say, Sheikh, in a year's time, you can hold me accountable for achieving one, two, three. So he sets the principles. I can't hold him accountable for my expectations. I can hold him accountable to what? For what he has set for himself. And subhanAllah, as soon as I read that in like some, some, some uh, university books, I remember something that I read in how to read a book. And I like jumped to that book and I used it yesterday 
in writing, in my, in my PhD writing. Uh, Mortimer Adler talks about something called controlling principles. Controlling principles is every author has controlling principles in his writing that you can hold him accountable. Has, have you, has he achieved that? For example, when I write a book, I say, by the end of this book, I hope I would have given everyone an idea of what, uh, let's say, market, eco mar market uh, economy could mean, uh, means and how to do it. Then you should ask this person about uh, cri crisis uh, handling. He, he never said that. You can't hold this person accountable about uh, how can we face uh, media uh, campaigns. That's, if a book is about marketing, then you shouldn't hold that, uh, that, that book uh, accountable for uh, establishing laws or rules and regulations. That's a completely different issue. So there's what, what we call controlling principles. So here, that's the proof. So, the, the future is better than the past. What's the proof? Look at yourself. You know things that you didn't know before. You knew the keys on how to open the hearts of the disbelievers and uh, guide them. You, you were taught things that you didn't know before. Are you the same person? No. Then, then the future is even better. So what is the responsibility? Ayah number 10. When you have knowledge and you are you 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 did not have knowledge before and now you have knowledge. Dal here doesn't mean misguided by the way. It means you did not have knowledge on how to guide people. So he guided you on how to guide them. But in other words, you didn't know how to teach. So he taught you how to teach and he gave you information. What's your responsibility then? Continue to teach. MashaAllah Musa. Yes, continue to enlighten people. Sa'il, we always reduce it to mean the beggar. Even though actually sa'ala is from su'al. What does su'al mean? Question. When someone asks you a question, don't tell him off. In other words, like when someone comes inquiring about something, teach him. And the Prophet ﷺ used to be very patient with the questioners. In Shama'il al-Tirmidhi, we read that the Sahaba Ridwan Allah Ta'ala alayhim said كان صلى الله عليه وسلم يعني يتصبر للسائل he used to like be very calm with the question even if the questioner like is very exhausting حتى like to the level that the sahaba in, in order to learn how can they be patient like the prophet وسلم, they used to go and get the roughest and the most uneducated Bedouins who know nothing about how to talk how to ask questions they're rough, like someone just coming out of the desert. It doesn't mean that people of the desert are bad or good. It just means their ways are different. Like subhanAllah, people who come from villages are different from people who come from cities. People who come from a neighborhood are different from people who come from another hood. So they would go and get people who have like no clue how to sit, how to talk. Imagine like someone coming into, your, into a gathering in the masjid and they're just walking in, uh, in shoes. Doesn't mean he's bad. No. He just doesn't know. You know the very famous uh, hadith <coughs> where this Sahabi he said, I came and I never knew what Islam is. The Prophet taught me and it was time for salah. He did wudu and in salah, in salah someone sneezed. So he just learned 
that when someone he saw people possibly saying to each other with this sneeze so in salah when someone sneezed this sahabi said what the salah continued after salah every one of the sahaba looked at him <laughs> understandable very natural it's like what <laughs> like that's that's how how you make people feel in the masjid so the sahaba now this man he's very smart the sahabi he knows that none of them should teach him who is the authority here the prophet so he said he said it's as if they have eaten me with their eyes <laughs> like basically frowning at him whom did he look at the prophet what shall i do he said first of all he didn't rebuke me nor did he like kahara or qahara are pretty much the same he did not rebuke me nor did he suppress me he didn't make me feel embarrassed so he just he said like he just pretended as if it has not happened but he said something like that like in salah we don't normally talk like when we that the, the way we talk outside it simple as that what's your point is your point to embarrass the person or to teach him something you yeah you make one of the two choices you can't embarrass and teach because once a person is embarrassed he won't be able to get anything like he's like so the Prophet ﷺ said, well, normally in Salah, possibly even the Prophet ﷺ said it publicly to teach somebody else. In Salah, we, we, we don't engage in normal conversation. Fine. Finished. Right? So, like asking questions. Like the Sahaba knew that a questioner would come to the Prophet ﷺ and ask him a very simple question. Very simple. Like this man who came and he tied his camel to the pillar of the masjid. Which pillar? The pillar which is right next to the chamber of a Sayyidah Aisha. <laughs> like so close. And then he walks in. And he said, Ayyukum ibn Abdul Muttalib. Which one of you is the son of Abdul Muttalib? Abdul Muttalib was known because the Abdullah, the father of the Prophet he died at a young age. Abdul Muttalib was known that he's master of Quraysh. He said, so they pointed at the Prophet Or they took him to the Prophet They didn't point. And then he said, Allah, like if I ask you by Allah, by Allah, I use the son of Abdul Muttalib. Well, they have told you. So he said, yes. Imagine if someone comes and he says, who is Muhammad Suleiman? Everyone pointed at him and he goes, are you Muhammad Suleiman? He would say, what do you think? <laughs> do I look like what? <laughs> Al-A'mash, he said, Al-A'mash was like a scholar, but he was quite funny. So him and his wife are having lunch and someone knocks the door. So he opens. And then the guy was very foolish. He said, which one of you is Al-Amish? <laughs> so Al-Amish pointed at his wife, this one. <laughs> like sometimes people ask very funny questions. Like, which, where is the sheikh? Oh, where is, oh, who, who is he? Anybody here? SubhanAllah. So sometimes people ask these questions and you need to be... Uh, innovative in, in your answer. The Prophet would never ever like rebuke someone. He would take the silliest or the so-called, the silly question. I always say to the, my students and everyone, there is no question that is silly. Because some people introduce their question, by the way, this is a silly question. No, the fact, <laughs> seriously. I, I believe that, wallahi, genuinely, there is no silly question. 
But there is impolite way of asking, and there is a polite way of asking. I met a brother in Edmonton, who was like, from the point I arrived in Edmonton, Canada, from the point I arrived from Toronto, he was like asking questions, asking questions. And at the end he said, I'm, I'm like really sorry for like disagreeing with you and causing you all of this distress. I said, not at all. There's only one thing that I cannot tolerate, impoliteness. If you're impolite, I'll cut you off, finished. Even if you are, uh, even if your question is, is, is genuine, you, ca you cannot be impolite. But if you're polite, in other words, if, you are, if, like you, if you're genuine in asking the question, hey, you can disagree with me from here till tomorrow. I don't believe that the world is so tight that it cannot accommodate except one person. It can accommodate all sorts of people. So, this is your duty. When you have knowledge, then you teach. The third claim oh, the surah is presenting is in uh, verse number number five, which is Your Lord will give you until you please. Give you of what? Spiritual, physical, he gives you sahaba, he gives you followers who believe in you until you are pleased that you have fulfilled your message. So, and he will give you, huh? he will give you uh, money. Huh? What's the proof of that? وَوَجَدَكَ عَائِلًا فَأَغْنَى عَائِل in Arabic, عَالَ in Arabic comes from the word عَوَلَ عَوَلَ means to decrease. Awl means to decrease. And decrease normally comes with responsibility. You have got resources. You've got like a thousand pounds salary a month. And it's only you and your wife. It is shared between two. Now you have four children. Five children. What will happen? The money is decreased. Why? Because the share of each is decreased. So it's called awl. If someone, and it has been taken from this original meaning to refer to responsibility in general. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it, it says, Al-Khalqu Iyalullah, that people are the Iyal of Allah. It means he's, they are Allah's responsibility. In the same way that you treat your own children. What do we call children in slang Arabic? Iyal. Al-Iyal. <laughs> they even used it to refer to young people. So in Egypt they say, Iyal. Like, oh, children. And sometimes they use it to refer to family. So someone, for example, even doesn't say my wife, he says, Al-Iyal. Al-Iyal means like, the people whom I'm responsible for. Like whether it's wife and children, family basically. Uh, in, <laughs> in, 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 uh, at one time, there's a brother who didn't have, actually have kids. And then he was saying to one of our mashayikh, خَرَكْتَنَا وَالْعِيَالُ وَقِيْتَنَا وَالْعِيَالُ مِيَنْ دَعِيَالُ went out and came in. I said, huh? When did you have Iyal? When did you have children? It's like, I mean my wife. <laughs> So they, 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 use, they use it to kind of refer to, to family, a generic thing. So a'il means what? Responsibility. Uh, the proof is, he found you with responsibility. He gave you sufficiency. He gave you sufficiency. So that ayah number five is, he will give you until you're pleased. But he will give me, he will give you, giving comes with responsibility. Giving me people, how am I going to feed them? How am I going to cater? And then the last thing, uh, which is the, 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 the responsibility is, Then be thankful. Be thankful and speak about it. Haddatha in Arabic means to talk, and it also means to show. 
Show it. Show the blessing of your Lord. Show the bounty of your Lord. So this surah, surah al-duha, has these three claims, three proofs, and three conclusions. Now, what? How is this surah? Uh, how how does it have different objectives? Number one, it obviously talks directly to the, to who? To the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, isn't it? It talks directly to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So supporting and honoring the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That's objective number one. But this surah did not uh, get removed from the Quran after the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam left this world. It's still there. So what is it saying to us for the community? Allah will not leave you. Every day is good for you, but every day is good for us. But we can see that everything is declined, is in decline. No, not true. The Prophet says, Ummati kal My Ummah is like rain. La Like you don't know which part of it is the best. Is it the last bit or the beginning? And he says, Goodness is in my ummah. The fact that there are awliya and salihin and righteous people and ulama in this ummah. Well, I was saying to my wife yesterday, the reality is the coming, the coming issue is not between atheism and religion. It's not intra-religious. It's between atheism and Islam. Why? Because Islam is the only faith that is telling its people to love life and that there is no dichotomy between life and and deen so and it it, it gives them this strength it basically de defines their moral and social choices in life and atheism is trying to replace that it's trying to redefine that and you can't have a redefinition from outside you have a redefinition from inside so strengthening the Muslim community that مَا وَدَّعَكَ رَبُّكَ وَمَا قَلَ وَلَا الْأَخِرَةُ خَيْرٌ لَكَ مِنَ الْأُولَى وَلَا سَوْفَ يُعْطِيكَ رَبُّكَ فَتَرْضَى Look at the number of people who convert to Islam. Even though there's loads of campaigns and fights and all of these smear campaigns. Like it's become quite like funny that when you hear certain things in news, for example. You say, لَا حَوْلَ لَقُدْعِ اللَّهِ بِلَكُمْ Been hearing this for so long. But yet, does that stop people from studying the Quran or reading the Quran or talking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? How much are people being told off about uh, like not to believe in a, in, a, in, in a God? But yet, people still find their way and they say, no, this life wasn't actually satisfying. The third level of, uh, of objective this surah is, is uh, referring to is disgracing the believers and fabricators who attack the Prophet So yes, giving the Prophet moral support, but at the same time saying, well, your Lord has not left you. Nowadays, when someone says, well, look, if you were Muslims, you, you would not be in such a miserable shape. Look at most Muslim countries, they are below the poverty level. Yes, but look at... Uh, Suicide levels as well. What's the value of life if you can't enjoy it? A simple man in an Egyptian village who doesn't have anything and he just like has income for the day and that's it, he's happy. SubhanAllah, I remember one man, like a farmer in her village, very simple man. We, when we say farmer in this country, people don't get an understanding of what we talk about. He's a peasant, like a very masakin. 
this man, his name is Amr Abdel Fattah. His farm used to be like right. His field used to be right next to our house. And Subhanallah, this man in there in August, and August in Egypt is horrible. Like we're talking about 45 degrees, 45, 50 degrees, like really hot. And this man, Subhanallah. He would wear something called qamis. It's like a, like similar to the qamis of the Prophet. You know the Sudanese thobe. It's like similar to the Sudanese thobe, but just below his his uh, his knees, mm. right? Cotton, yeah. and he wears it on his skin. Nothing else underneath, and he wears uh, libas. It's like a long shorts. Again, you know, below his knees, and his hat, wool made of wool, like hand woven. He buys it from another peasant, and he's in the middle of the field using his axe and working. And then subhanAllah, you find his wife coming. Mishanna is like a, a, a big tray with some dry bread, uh, cheese, no, not our, uh, not our luxurious cheese, <laughs> cheese like that she made at home, yeah. and some food and onion. <laughs> okay, and he, cuts, he cuts the onion with his hand like <laughs> He just puts it on his knee and he, he says, let's kill the onion. <laughs> and he would just eat. Subhanallah. He's there till after Maghrib and then he goes home. Next day after Fajr, he's in the field. And he prays like at the time of Salah. He would pray. So one day, Subhanallah, this man, and he's, guess how old is he? Possibly 70. He goes in and says, Subhanallah. He's more active than a 20-year-old man. And he asks him, he says to me, Ya Ustad, it doesn't matter what food you eat if Allah gives you the stomach that can digest it. Like the hikmah. What's the point if you have money to buy the, the sweetest and the best, the finest food, but you have no health? Subhanallah. He says, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give you the health that enables you to, to, to digest that food. <laughs> these, these people, very simple, but very wise. Allah, very, very wise. And he would sit, and he had like four children, and all of them, like some of them were married and stuff like that. If his son, his son possibly 28 or something like that, he's, he would smoke. If he sees his father from a distance, he will... <laughs> he would put the, the cigarette somewhere. One time he put it in his own pocket and it burned through his clothes because he's afraid of his father. Not afraid in the sense of afraid, it's like that respect, that awe. And this is a man who just works in the field, not known to anyone. Possibly you know, died at the age of like 85 or something like that. But every single day in the heat, you'll just find him in the field. He doesn't have anything else. Field and these people, even his family, they didn't own anything. All the fields that they were working on, they were actually rented. <laughs> they basically rented one of our fields. <laughs> and my father allowed them to, to rent it. He said, because they are very honest. Because peasants normally look at people who have like jobs and they say, oh, these guys have salaries and they have land and stuff like that, especially like if, if you are a bit well off. And he said, oh, they have a lot of resources. It doesn't matter if we delay the rent. It doesn't matter if we don't give a full thing. You know, you know like this, this policy. 
they say in Egypt, the Fallah Makkar, like the Fallahina, like they're, they're not, they're cunning. They have that little cunningness. Like. But this man, subhanAllah, him and his wife, last, like first day of the year, it is a yearly thing. First day of the year, they call it the agricultural year. Uh, he would, she would, she, the woman would come, and she would come and sit for He would affirm her, and what, what she did, imagine, she used to make falafel. You know what falafel is? Yeah. yeah, she would make falafel in the corner, like in the street. Every morning she would come, have her uh, bagur, like a, like a gas, of, uh, <laughs> gas cooker. Uh, she has to, uh, you, you guys don't have these here. And she would put a big uh, frying pan on yeah. top, a like huge one, and she would make the falafel and people would come and buy from her. Very simple people. But they will save technically, like one pea by, by one pea. At the beginning of her agricultural year, she will come and fall. Uh, Subhanallah like you, you see these individuals and you say to yourself you see these and you, then you see individuals who have got millions and they're not honest Subhanallah I remember the ayah there are people whom you trust with a pile of money they give it to you and there are others you give them you trust them with one dinar they don't give it so it doesn't matter how much you entrust the person with. It's about what? Honesty. If a person is honest, he will give. As Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala an, when they took the bracelets of Kisra, and he found them in the booty, he found them in the, in the money. He said, إِنَّ الَّذِي أَدَّى إِلَيْنَ هَذَا لَأَمِينَ Like someone finding these and he's bringing them, he could have hidden them. Isn't it? You're entering the palace of Kisra. Huh? Imagine you enter the palace of any, any president and you find something, put it in your pocket and no one sees you. No, but to bring them, and you could go and sell them in the black market, so, but to bring them and put them, Sayyidina Umar ta'ala said, the one who has, give, has given this is a me, is trustworthy. Like that's, that's real trustworthiness. And then uh, one of the people stands up and he says, Ya Amir al-Mumin, You have fulfilled that, they, have, they fulfill as well. Will you fulfill in what is bigger? <laughs> then why shouldn't they fulfill in what is what's something, something like that? That's why we don't have a dual morality. You can't be good to those who are good and bad to those who are bad. You are good to those who are good and those who are bad. You can't be moral with someone who is moral and immoral with someone who is immoral. You have to be moral with both. You can't be foul with someone and clean-tongued with another. You have to be clean-tongued with both. If you're foul, you're foul in all situations. You might just be a foul undercover. <laughs> when things show, you show your true colors. The fourth, uh, the fourth key of connecting to the Quran is conceptualizing the social, psychological, and intellectual context, people, and time, and space. We mean by that, that you need to understand the environment of the people upon whom the Quran was revealed. When was this text? Whenever you read the text, it's always good to say, who received this? Of course, the Prophet But who were the people around him? Was this in Mecca or Medina? Or in between? Was these people small in number or many? And what was the psychological and spiritual state? Were they down spiritually or were they happy? 
You might look at one of your children and say, support him and give him some support. And then his brother says, how come that you're talking to him so nicely? You don't talk to me normally like this. He needs that support. So what is their psychological and spiritual state during the text revelation? What was, how did they look? What was their spiritual shape? And also conceptualizing the time and the place of the text. So, is it talking to poor people or rich people? Is it talking to people at time of peace or war? Are they safe or they are at fear? Are they victorious or defeated? Are they hopeful or they depressed? Have they just come out of Uhud? So that the Quran is telling them, if you're hit by defeat, they have been hit by defeat before. It's like saying to your son, don't worry. If you fail this time, you succeeded before. So you'll succeed again. But you say to another person, that was a big mistake. Why? Because you could have seen, or you have seen, this person was neglectful throughout the year. Didn't I warn you? Didn't I tell you? So were they hopeful or depressed? Was it in Mecca or in Medina? We know from Ulum al-Quran that the Meccan Quran normally is famous for its brevity. Meccan Quran is always what? Brief. The ayat are short. For example, وَالضُّحَى وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا سَجَى مَا وَدَّعَكَ رَبُّكَ وَمَا قَلَى شُهُ But lengthy ayat, uh, lengthy ayat are related to Medina. Someone is relaxed. Mecca Quran is known for its metonymy and allegory. You know what metonymy is? Hmm? What is metonymy? Anyone knows? Check it up in the dictionary. Metonymy is a form of metaphor where basically you associate human characteristics to an inanimate object. For example, say, saying, walls have ears. What are you saying? Walls have ears. Do walls really have ears? No. That's what, it's a metaphor. But you have ascribed, attributed, a, f a physical quality of human beings, living human beings, to a inanimate object. And that, that happens quite a lot. Allegory is similar to that. Uh, like, for example, you say, I'm all ears. It's a, it's a form of allegory. Meccan Quran has that. Why? <laughs> Imagine you are teaching children uh, some story. What will you be choosing for, for your children to read or to be related to? Huh? Like very little ones. Stories that are full of images. Yes. Why? To trigger their brain and imagination. Even if children's books... Oh, by the way, this is very interesting. Unfortunately, most of the stories that we have for our children now are full of images, isn't it? But if you buy anything from before 1945, it's not that full of images. It has words. Why? Because it it gives the role for the parents to read with their children. But now with the decline in the role of the parents reading to the children, they have no time. So they just give the children some and the children are <laughs> they don't know what's actually what are they flipping but if you sit with the child and you read the story of the child and you get something something old 
And subhanAllah, it's very sad that many of these stories and many of these books are inaccessible. Like things that have been printed before 1945, uh, based on, uh, on some advice from Elizabeth Hansen, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf's sister, who's uh, specialized in homeschooling. We, we ordered like a few books. One of them was called, uh, was called The Book of Nonsense. It's a very good book, The Book of Nonsense. It's, it's, a, it's a children book. And uh, the copies, they sent us two copies, and the copies that, that came from Amazon were actually a, a, a photocopy of the original, and very bad photocopy. Many pages were missing, and there was like blank pages. So we had actually to return it, and we can't find any, any original copy there. I mentioned to you before the how to read the book, isn't it? And the book, uh, how to read the book. I read how to read the book in 2012, and I, I really liked it. Uh, and my, my copy is still there like to, to possibly read it again but then recently Sheikh Hamza was suggesting that when people want to get how to read a book they should not get uh, any uh, edition uh, beyond the first edition the first oh. edition was published 1940 mm. how to read a book the 2013-14 no, even 1972 edition, it's possibly 11 pounds, 12 pounds maximum, something like that. The 1940 edition, if you find it, because I struggled until I found it, was 67 pounds. Yeah. But honestly, I, for, for someone who loves books, just smelling it is good. <laughs> it is actually amazing. Just like smelling it is good. You know, there is addiction to the smell of books, old books. It just, it just feels good. Me and my wife had a, had a lengthy argument about why should I, I had to defend my case. Uh, why should I pay that much no, money no, no, no. getting a book that I already have in my library? <laughs> and I had to convince her that it's, it has actually, it's different. And it's actually different. SubhanAllah, it's actually different. In font, it is different. In order, it's different. It's much, e it's much accessible. It doesn't have a lot of nonsense that were added to the book uh, at the 1972 uh, edition. Anyway, uh, uh, the Meccan Quran has got this many, much of this allegory, naming an allusion to places. Again, you know, linking people to, to places. Surat, take, for example, Surat Al-Masad, Tabbat Yada, Abi Lahab, naming, Watab, Ma Agna Anhu Maluhu, Wama Kasab, Sayasla Nara, place, Na Zata Lahab, Wamraatuhu, allusion. That's a kind of a metonymy. Because when you put in someone's jeed, in someone's uh, neck, a rope, what does that mean? They're like chained. They're like imprisoned. So that's, that's, a, that's an allegory that she would be chained in, in hellfire. Not necessarily a literal thing. The Medinian Quran has long, elaborate discussions, reference to people of the book. And I'm, I have given an example here of the surah, pretty much of the same length as Surah Al-Masr. إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ Look, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ Six words. تَبَّتْ يَدَى أَبِي لَهَبٍ وَتَبْ Six. مَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُ مَالُهُ وَمَا كَسَبْ وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدْخُلُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجَ Seven. So the Quran that was revealed in Medina is a bit longer. 
Take Surah Al-Baqarah, for example. It's mainly a Medinian Surah. All the Surahs that start with disjointed letters are Meccan Surahs except Al-Baqarah and Al-Ibran. And Al-Baqarah is the longest Surah in the, in the Quran. So it's important to look at this. Another uh, key of uh, dealing with the Quran and connecting with it is opting for a universal meaning rather than a particular interpretation. As I said before, sometimes there are these words in the Quran that were even difficult for uh, Meccan Arabs to understand. Why? The Quran is a universal message. And it had words from even uh, dialects of tribes that lived outside Arabia, that lived outside Mecca. There was a study by a Moroccan scholar that uh, tackled uh, or actually looked at which words in which dialect. And there is an atlas actually, there is an atlas of the dialects in, uh, in pre-Islamic Arabia. Like for example, the language of Tayyip, how did they speak? The language of Hudayl, how did they speak? The language of Abs, how, how did they speak? The language of Juhayna, remember that these people around they might be using different words. In, in today's world, world in, in Arab countries, people use different words to refer to the same thing. I, I always uh, been like quoting this example quite a lot because it's quite prominent. If you go to Morocco, has anyone been to Morocco before? Uh, uh, if you say to someone who's eating the sahati wal afiyah, will they be happy or not? What does afiyah mean? except in Morocco. It means fire. Yes, it means fire. So if you say to a Moroccan, he will actually be very angry. <laughs> so afia in Moroccan accent means fire. Bidun, what does it mean? Without, except in Morocco, Tunisia and Algeria. It means jug. So if you say to someone, Shai bidun sukkar, tea without sugar, he will bring you a jug of sugar <laughs> and some tea. That's how, mashi, what does it mean? Mashi, never mind, except in Yemen. It means, no. Mashi, mashi, like, no. So it depends if someone wants to agree with you on something and you say mashi, if, he, if he's Egyptian, or he's from elsewhere in the Arab world, he will think that you're saying, okay. But in Yemen, it, will be, it, 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 it would mean no. It would mean no. So when we look at the, some of these words in the Quran, the Sahaba, Radwanullahi Ta'ala, tried to interpret it from context, or from asking these tribes themselves. So they read in, the, in Surah al in Surah Al-Ma'arif, إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ خُلِقَ هَلُوعًا The word halu'a, hala'a in Arabic means to be frightened. But it's actually used for two things. It could be like frightened because something bad or something good, isn't it? So when, when, when I say to someone, لِمَاذَا الْهَلَعَ Why are you like not settled? Lack of settlement, it could be caused by sadness, it could be caused by 
stinginess. For example, if someone sees you taking money, if a, a person sees you taking money of him, yahla, like he becomes what? Irritated. Why? He's stingy. If someone uh, sits for so long and he's waiting for someone else, and then after after a couple of hours he yahla, okay, he becomes irritated. Why? Fed up, isn't it? If someone sees, uh, like he just comes out of exam and he's waiting for the results, he's irritated. Why? He's keen to get the results. So the, the, uh, if, if someone, for example, loses something, why? He's, he, he can easily get sad for losing things. So the word has different meanings. Sa'id ibn Jubayr said, Shahihun jazwa. Shahih means stingy. Jazwa means very frustrated, easily frustrated. Ikrimah radiallahu anhu said, Dajur, bored. He gets bored very quickly. Husayn said, Haris, keen. Al-Dahak said, Bakhil, miserly. So we can say that Halu' could mean all of these. How? By looking at, depending on what do you get irritated by. If it's because of money, it's because of loss, it's because of looking for something, in Surah Al-Baqarah, and th there is an application here, like an application of this. I will, I'll get to, like, I mean, uh, I applied this, this tool in, uh, in one of the ajza. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, سَيَقُولُ السُّفَهَاءُ مِنَ النَّاسِ مَا وَلَّاهُمْ عَنْ قِبْلَتِهِمُ الَّتِي كَانُوا عَلَيْهَا In the beginning of the second juz, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the fools amongst the people will say what has turned them from the qibla they, they had. The Prophet ﷺ prayed towards Baytul Maqdis for 16 months. And then after 16 months in Medina, he was commanded to direct his face towards the Kaaba. So people talked. Who are these people? Some versions say the Jews of Medina. They said, how come that they are changing their direction? And so what happened to their salah? It's like you said, uh, I've been, you've been working in a, on a specific project. And then there was a shift in the project. So what is going to happen to the work that I have done? So what will happen to their salah? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, says to them, well, don't, look, don't be superficial. Don't look at the direction. Look at the ibadah. If the ibadah was right and the intention was there, all of that credit will be transferred. And that's not your business at the end of the day. So who are these sufaha? Why didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala name them? Why didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala highlight who are they in terms of like a, a tribe or a community or a group of people? He just said what? Sufaha. A safih is an individual who doesn't act wisely. So for example, you say, the Quran says, don't give your money to the sufaha. Why? They are unwise. So, it can be like, those who are only attached to superficiality, they will say, how come? Like someone comes to Ridwan. Oh, subhanAllah, Ridwan, how come that you shorten your beard? Subhanallah, how come that you grown your moustache? I have known you always like with a moustache, really? Hmm. Like how long have you known me for? And does the moustache make me a different Ridwan? I'm the same person, isn't it? How come that you've put on weight? How come that you've lost on, uh, some weight? How come that people who are obsessed with what? With outward. So... As the judge, a mufassir said, it refers to Arab polytheists. Mujahid said, well, it refers to the Jews who used to live at the time of the Prophet As said, they said, no, it's the hypocrites who said this. 
Ibn Kathir says it could be all of them and anyone who focuses on superficiality. And you see that Ibn Kathir is good in that. If we, if I, if I take your copy of Just I want to read this bit in uh, in uh, in the second. Just I just want you to have a look at the part two. That is page number nine. Yeah, in the book. It's called traversing forms, attaining meanings. So I say, found it. Yeah. One of the outward manifestations of lack of submission to Allah and deficient understanding of Him, exalted is He, is an excessive preoccupation with outward forms of worship, thereby neglecting the inward reality. Purpose, wisdom, and meaning. This is part, this part thus begins with the narration of the change in the prayer direction. The Qibla, the Prophet and his companions originally faced originally prayed facing Jerusalem in obedience to the command of Allah. Then a further command came to turn towards the hallowed house in Mecca. This occurred while the Prophet ﷺ was in what became known thereafter as the Masjid of the Two Qiblas. Following this instruction, he, along with his companions, changed their direction of prayer. At this point, the tongues of the resentful were loosed, spreading the false rumors about them and casting accusations of vacillation and aspersions of inconsistency upon them. Oh, by the way, like this is a side point. If your English is not very great, you will need a dictionary with this. Dr. Asim's English is good. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. But one of the words that like really, really, uh, I really liked it, and then, because I, I have studied German back in the days. You know, when you are happy at somebody else's suffering, they say in English, like for example, you're, you're happy because someone has, is, is in trouble or is in, uh, going through difficulty. That's a, that's a bad thing. Mm. They say in English, gleeful. But gleeful is not correct. Actually, it's, it doesn't actually represent that because gleefulness is like happiness, yeah. regardless of anything else. But there is a, a German word that has found its way into, into English dictionary. It's called Schadenfreude. Mm. Schadenfreude. Schaden is harm. Freud is to be happy. In German, Freuden, F-R-E-U-D-E-N. Freud, Freud. You know, like Sigmund Freud? Yeah. It's Freuden, to be, to Frieden is to be happy. Right? Schaden is harm. Schaden macht is like to make harm. Macht is making. Similar to me. Like Schumacher. Schumacher is like Schumacher, yeah, Schumacher. So he used that word, which was really, really good. So the part begins by alluding to those who are attached to the outward form of worship and are distracted by their bedizening of words and actions from the perfecting of inward meanings and states, thus preoccupied with direction. They fail to truly turn their hearts to Allah. The Quran gives them the epithet, shameless fools. You know what epithet is? It's like a title. Epithet of shameful fools. This indicates utmost derision, for God does not refer to them by any name or distinguishing feature, merely sufficing with this attribute, fools who neither comprehend nor understood, comprehended nor understood, being too attached to mere forms. 
So this is the application of what we call the universal meaning. Like the Quran did not give them any name. It just said, these are actually foolish. Why? Because were they not? They would have understood why is, it, why is uh, this, this direction does not affect the, the, the validity of your prayer. Imagine you put in your money in a bank, and then what happens? The bank changes its name. It's the same bank. <laughs> Nothing will happen to your, to your, to your, uh, to your money. It's, this, it's the same bank, except that they change their name. One of the keys of understanding and connecting with the Quran, uh, Sayyid Muhammad, you, 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 tell, you tell me uh, when, when do you want to stop for uh, Maghrib? At four, okay. And I want you to just enjoy this. Understanding the complementary rather than repetitive nature of Quranic texts. When we always look at the Quran, we say, why does the Quran repeat parts of the stories over and over again. Musa alayhi salam meeting the magicians yeah. in here. And he's also meeting the magicians here. What's that point? Well, in reality, this claim is made because of our limited Arabic, uh, limited understanding of Arabic language. I told you before that Arabic is a very subtle language. In fact, there is no repetition. There is no repetition, I'm telling you. Everything that is mentioned in the surahs and the stories of the Quran, you just need to bring it together like a puzzle. And it will give you the bigger picture. And I will give you a practical example. But this is like a very quick practical example. Musa has been mentioned in Al-Baqarah. In Al-Imran? No, there is no mention of him in Al-Imran. And Nisa? Of course, that's, that's, that's unique. But his encounter with Fir'aun has been mentioned essentially in Al-A'raf, Al-Shu'ara, Faha, Al-Nazi'at, but I would, sorry? Taking Al-A'raf and Faha and Al-Shu'ara together, and Al-Nam, part of it is Al-Nam as well. I want to compare what looks like or may look to people as the same. Musa coming back from the land of Madian with his wife, they, they decided to camp in the desert. It's dark. And then they saw a fire in the horizon. So Musa said in one place, Sa'atikum. And another place he said, La'alli atikum. Well, it might sound to you, La'alli atikum, I may bring to you, Sa'atikum, I will bring to you. It might sound the same. Because ata, to bring. But no, these are two different stages. Yes, it's the same situation, it's the same fire, it's the same journey, but they describe two different mental and psychological states and distances. When you see a fire in the horizon, you don't know if this is an enemy or a friend. So you can't say to your family, I'm going to get you something from there. <laughs> well, I may. If I come back safe, I'll bring something. So which one would suit in that? I may bring to you. And the opposite is, And possibly, I might not bring anything. And possibly, I won't even come back. When you get close, 
And you realize, oh, there is no one around the fire. You know what? It's safe to proceed. You say, don't worry. I'll come back with something. Now let's look at these two. And I will show you something very, very interesting. I haven't actually tried it before. Yeah. But let, let, let me try finding this in the book. Just to show you which one is where. Musa alayhi salam, when he was starting the journey to bring something to his family. Yeah. He said, لَعَلِّي آتِيكُمْ لَعَلِّي آتِيكُمْ مِنْهَا بِخَبَرٍ أَوْ جَدْوَى That's very, very interesting. When he's distant and he doesn't know what is there, he doesn't know if the fire is surrounded by anyone or not, he said, I may bring to you news, خبر, some news, or some brand of fire. Jadwa is a brand of fire. Why? When you see it in distance, you might assume that there is someone, so I'll bring you some news. In other words, that there is someone who can host us for dinner, who can give us support and this and that. That's khabar. Or, if there is no one, it would, it would have meant that people were here and they left. And how do they extinguish the fire in the desert? They don't put water on it. What do they do? Sand. Sand. So the fire will be still there. I will undig it and take it here. That's because he's distant. That's when he said, Right. But the other one is Shihab al Qabas. Let me. Shihab it. Uh, here he's saying, I will definitely bring you something. I'll bring some news or atikum What does she have me? Jadwa, by the way, the one before, is a brand of fire that doesn't have flames. Shihab is one that has got what? Flames. Flames. So how would you notice if the fire has flames or not? Closeness. Isn't it? That oh, the fire is still alive. But possibly from a distance, what do you see? Smoke. Yeah. So I'll go and see if it's still a living fire or not. These are two different things. This is amazing. فَلَمَّا جَاءَهَا فَلَمَّا أَتَهَا جَاءَ in Arabic means to come. And أَتَهَا also means what? To come. To come. أَتَهَا أَتَهَا أَمْرُ اللَّهِ has come. فَلَمَّا أَتَهَا فَلَمَّا جَاءَهَا If you look at فَلَمَّا جَاءَهَا جَاءَ is full of force. وَجَاءَ رَبُّكَ وَالْمَلَكُ صَفًا صَفًا When I say to you, Come now. It is full of zeal. You say, When, did, when was Musa, when did Musa come with force to the fire? 
when he was sure about it. But Atta is to come with some cautiousness. When? With La'ali. And these are two separate situations. So one is basically like a, a dramatic representation of what is happening. Musa is like when he comes close, that's at like to come with force, to move with force. Look, أقبل ولا تخف لا تخف أقبل ولا تخف. You wouldn't say to someone who is close to you أقبل, which means come and don't be afraid. The other one is what? Don't be afraid. You won't say to someone, come and don't be afraid if he's close to you. Isn't it? If he's this, is it. Come and don't be afraid. What are you afraid of? But when he's close to you and he's like, don't, don't be afraid. It's okay. It doesn't make sense to say to someone who's right next to you, what? Aqbil. Aqbil is I'm here. So, Aqbil wa la is for the distant one. La is for that. Close. And we think it's the same situation. No. The discourse varies. The way, the language, the terminology varies. Someone from distance is different from someone who's close. Right. Let's move out of the situation. And I'll take you to an even more striking situation. I ask this question to people. We know that Musa alayhi salam met the magicians, isn't it? How many times? How many times? Well, Musa alayhi salam met the magicians, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. One. I said once. Who says once? I want your hands up, please. Which? which yeah, magicians. magicians. Oh, no, no, no. In the Quran, he met the magicians, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he, he met the magicians, he yeah. threw his stick. Yeah. How many times? Yeah, give, give me hands. And by the way, it's, you have to give hands in this or that. <laughs> Silence is unacceptable. It's not, a, it's, it's not a failure, don't worry. Huh? So how many times? Once. How many, how many people agree with once? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> so who says more than once? One, two, three, four, five, six. I think I'll go with more seven. Yes. It's more than once. It's twice. And you can't actually get that except from analyzing Arabic language. And let me give you the subtleties here. In Arabic, we have the formula fa'i doer of something, subject noun, for someone who does something once. So for example, when someone kills, we call him qatil. The verb is qatala, qatil. But if someone is a criminal serial killer, we call him qatal. Qatal. Even in Islam, we say qatal He's like a killer of killers. He's a very experienced killer. So fa'al and fa'al. In the Quran, يَأْتُوكَ بِكُلِّ سَاحِرٍ They will bring to you every sahir. Sahara in Arabic. Sahara means to play magic. Sahir is magician. Sahara is not a magician. He's a top, top magician. Ah, he's at the low level. So Musa السلام, first came to Quran with a challenge. What is it? Let me show you something. I am sent to you as a Rasul Rabbil Alam, messenger from Allah. So what's the proof? 
ثرو هيز ستيك فالقى عصا اذا هي تركاله مبين روح جاء بيك ديسبلاي ونزع يده شو هيز هاند هيز هاند هاد وات هاد سم سم مارك اون ات بيكوز هي هيلد براند فاير وي واز ا تشارل شو هيز هاند هيز هاند از كلين نوتينج سو هاو سيد او وات دو يو سي وات دو يو جايز ثينك اند سيد مست بي ا ماجيشن از ا ماجيشن سو وات شال وي دو Let's send to different Egyptian cities to bring our local magicians to place him. You don't need to send to another country to bring the top magician. You need to send to what? Different cities. When you send to different cities, what do you send? Do you send delegations, official delegations, or one person to every city? This is the representative of the central government asking for the magician of this area to come. What is the name of a one sent person? Messenger. What's the Arabic for messenger? Rasul, and what's the verb? Arsala wa arsil. They said to him, wa arsil fil madayin, sent to the different cities. They brought the locals. This is the first encounter or the second encounter? First. Is Musa afraid or not? It's first. It's first. Yeah. Apprehensive. Huh? Apprehensive. Apprehensive. Look at Surah Al-A'raf, amazing, subhanAllah, look at it, amazing. Musa, they said to him, إِمَّا أَن تُلْقِيَ وَإِمَّا أَن نَكُونَ نَحْنُ مُلْقِينَ They are like very confirmed. And then Musa, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَأَوْحَيْنَا إِلَى مُوسَى We told Moses, أَنْ أَلْقِ عَصَاتِ Throw it, throw your stick, don't be afraid. They were defeated, and they were kicked out. <laughs> and then Pharaoh said, well, that cannot happen. So they decided that another meeting should happen, but with the top magicians from other countries. For that, he has to send delegation. <coughs> What's the Arabic word for delegation? Ba'atha. Like diplomatic delegation. And what's the verb? Ba'atha. Ibaat. It's like an authority. So they said, no, 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 no. That doesn't work. Let's go and send like send big delegations to different cities to bring us the Sahari, not the Sahara, no, the Sah, not the Sahari. But what is Sahara? So these guys came. Remember one important thing: Would a citizen of Egypt, a magician from Egypt, ask Pharaoh, who was seen as half god, half human, for payment? No. They're just happy that Pharaoh has invited them for that meeting. Isn't it? They get pain. But the other guys come from a different from a different country. They said to him, Inna lana la ajran in kunna nahmul ghalibin. This is a contract. We will be paid if we defeat him. He said, of course. Wa inna kum lawna muqarrabin. I'll put you close to me as well. Like not only that, I'll give you governmental jobs in the government of Egypt and I'll pay you as well. No one dares to say that to Pharaoh from Egypt. It has to be an experiment. Possibly coming from Iraq, coming from India, come from here and there. These guys, and because they were sure about themselves, where did they conduct that meeting? Yomuzin, in like a public theater, where they invited everyone from Egypt. Because Musa could have defeated, he has, he had, could have defeated these guys in the small palace. But these guys are like, I'll give you another thing, very amazing. <laughs> 
one school of magic uses pretty much the same tools. But different schools of magic, they, they use different tools. So the Quran wants to show us the diversity of the magicians who came from all over different countries. And he says, they threw hibalahum wa They threw their sticks and their ropes. While the people of Egypt, they only throw what? Sticks. And this is subhanAllah, something that you would just pass by and you never notice that. فَأَلْقَوْ حِبَالَهُمْ وَعِصِيَّهُمْ They threw their hibal, their ropes, and their sticks. وَقَالُوا أَمْيَسِدْ بِعِزَّةِ فِرْعَوْنِ We swear in the name of Pharaoh. We swear in the dignity and we're here representing Pharaoh. But the other guys, they couldn't swear in the name of Pharaoh because they, they are just being, they are subjects who've been told, come face this little evil, right? So the first time I told you, Musa was a bit afraid. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down to us and said, huh, don't be afraid. فَأَوْجَسَ فِي نَفْسِهِ خِيْفَةً مُوسَى Musa was afraid. قُلْنَا لَا تَخَفْ إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْأَعْلَى Like you're higher than them. وَأَلْقِنَا فِي يَمِينِكَ تَلْقَفْ مَا صَنَعُهُ Through what is in your right hand. But when Musa alayhi salam is mentioned in Surah Al-Shu'ara, and I'll, I'll show you, Allah, it's very amazing. Huh? The Surah Shara talks about what? Talks about the Sahara or the Sahari. Huh? Here. Sahari, the top ones. So Musa, look at this. In this Surah, Musa does not even wait for them to say. Do you want to throw first or you want us to throw first? Right after, look at the Quran. Fara'un said to them, True, and you will be close to me. Like I'll pay you. Musa said in such a challenging manner, throw whatever you want to throw. <laughs> he's basically a little apprehensive now. He's what? He's aggressive. He's challenging. That's a discourse of someone who's not afraid. But he's facing who? Higher authority. And when would you be not afraid if you had that experience before? You've been supported before. So I have given this example of many examples, brothers and sisters, so that when we look at the Quranic stories, we need to bring them together and fit them with one another so that we see the bigger picture that in fact there is no repetition in any Quranic stories. There is no repetition in the Quranic texts. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that there is, there is no increase or decrease in this Quran. That's why when we say short surah and long surah, I always don't like that. Because there is no short or long surah. Every surah is enough for the purpose of, of the message that it wanted to deliver. There is no increase in an ayah or even a letter. Subhanallah al-Azim, if you even go to the Qur'an and try to change a preposition, it will massively show that this is strange. There is a, a story, and again, you know, it falls within the common sense of a clean, pure, standard Arabic language. They say that al-Asma'i, this is a common, a very known story. Al-Asma'i, Abdul Malik ibn Qarib, al-Asma'i was like a top linguist of his time, top like similar to Sibawai at his time. Al-Asma'i Abdul Malik ibn Qarib, he was reciting an ayah in Surah Al-Ma'idah. The ayah goes like this, was was A male or a female thief. 
فاقطعوا ايديهما cut their hands if they are proved guilty جزاء بما كسب in punishment of what they have done نكالا من الله punishment from Allah والله and Allah is what should follow عزيز حكيم he is almighty he is wise he is almighty because he is the decider and he is all wise that he has decided that this is the type of punishment Al-Asma'i made a mistake and he replaced Aziz al-Hakim with Ghafoor al-Rahim. He's forgiving and merciful. And there was like a little girl playing. Uh, like from, he was in the desert. And she said to him, Ya Shaykh, Aziz al-Hakim, it's not Ghafoor al-Rahim. He said to her, did you memorize the Quran at such a young age? She said, no. Did you read this surah before? She said, never. So how did you know? She said, if he's almighty and wise, he cuts if he's forgiving and merciful he wouldn't have cut he just said cut their hands he could have said forgive them and overlook it for allah is forgiving but he said azizun hakim if he said cut he's azizun hakim the example i gave you earlier serious or merciful right so this is again you know even the if we if we look at the the prepositions and the use of prepositions in arabic we have a, a rule that says حروف الجر تتعاون that prepositions normally replace one another but when you replace a preposition with another preposition it has to be for a valid purpose for example if you want to say أَتَّعِيْتُ إِلَى الْبَيْتِ I've come to the house you can't replace إِلَى with mean because it would mean something else isn't it mm. i come to the house if you see i came to i've come from the house mm. so this means i came from this means i came to one is destination one is what origination yeah. the question is this can you replace a letter a preposition with another preposition for a purpose other for any purpose yes you have to, to have meaning for example the Quran says, let me give you the, the classic example. If you want to say that Allah has gifted you with a child in your old age, in your old age, not against your old age, yeah? so you use fi, isn't it, Erdogan? you can say, Razaqani, Allahu fil kibari ghulama. Allah has given me a child in old age. So fi, you wouldn't say, رَزَقَنِي لَهُ عَلَى الْكِبَرِ عَلَى means on on because عَلَى in Arabic means on top of something physically or spiritually for example if I say he is an Iman it means spiritually he is established in Allah says that Ibrahim السلام, was gifted he gifted Ibrahim with a child عَلَى الْكِبَرِ replacing fi with عَلَى indicates two things one, the preposition is kept, but it indicates that normally in old age people don't get children. So it's as if old age was resisting having children, but Allah has given him. And that, that's, that's one of so many examples. Another example, you accept something from, not... The verb, the verb is, عفوت, oh, sorry. قَبِلْتُ مِنْهُ Isn't it silly? I accept from someone. You don't say قَبِلْتُ عَنْهُ عَنْ 
is basically on behalf of. The, the, the preposition and is normally used with عفوتو, and I forgive him. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ نَتَقَبَّلُ عَنْهُ These are the ones whom we accept on behalf of. Huh? So he uses the preposition that would have gone with forgiveness with the verb that means to accept. Why? To tell you that even when you do something good and Allah accepts it from you, it has some dirt in it that Allah forgives as well. It's again, you know, these subtleties of Arabic language are so clear and accurate in the Quran that we can sit here and just like talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about Arabic language and just like go amazed and amazed. Unfortunately, because English is a barrier and a medium, it doesn't give us the full capacity of speaking about, about Arabic. But next time, for example, Surat, uh, the story of Sayyidina Shaib. He says, Like fulfill the weight and the measure. And do not uh, belittle what people give to you. In another ayah, It's the same text except that one is with what? So why is one and the other is without it? Why? Qist in Arabic means fairness or justice. There is another word, adl, which means also justice. But what's the difference between adl and qist? Adl is justice as it is. Qist is the manifestation of that. That's why the mizan, the scale is called qist. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Hujurat, that when you establish justice between your brothers, فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا بِالْعَدْلِ Reconcile them with fairness. وَأَقْصِطُ Like an established qist. Well, I have just established justice between them. So what, is, what else am I going to establish? It means promote justice. Be a manifestation of justice. Don't apply justice only at one time and forget it as a community. No, no. وَأَقْصِطُ Turn justice into what? Practice. You might say, well, I'm, I'm reconciling fairly between two people, but justice is not a morality in the community. No, 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 no. Promote adl in the community. Let your actions and your movements and your interactions be a manifestation of this. There is a difference between establishing morality and promoting morality. Two different things. You might establish morality, but you don't promote it. You have a role in the society of promoting morality and standing up for it and saying, well, this is wrong. Yes, the world is changing around us, but this is wrong. Why? Our reference point is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Quran. So when we look at all of these subtleties, Shu'aib said, Like don't belittle people's things. Like don't stop this. It's possibly telling them when they are in the terrible practice of not giving fairness, fair treatment for each other. Now, when someone becomes a bit better, he says, well, isn't that good? Isn't fair treatment good? Then, Bilqist, turn that into practice. Make that into a habit. Let the society all act in this way, right? So when we read in the Quran, 
And I'm telling you, wallahi, I have been, I have been in the company of the Quran, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never deprive us from this. Been in the company of the Quran from possibly as far as I remember my life, like 1983 or 84. I've been in the company of the Quran, like reading it and revising it. I still remember when uh, I used to write my loh in Surah Al-Ahqaf, and that was possibly about 1984. I still remember how, what bit I was actually writing from uh, Surah Al-Ahqaf. I still visualize myself sitting on our dining table and writing my loh and my uncle was coming and visiting us. With all of these years, I read the Quran, Alhamdulillah, every single day. Fadlullah, Radwan has seen like half a truth every, every single day. And yet, and the Quran is played 24-7 in our house. Yet, there are new things I discover every time I read the Quran. Unbelievable. It's as if I haven't read these ayahs before. And meanings come and go, and come and go, and new ones come. It's like unbelievable how the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is such a... You just need to kind of open your eyes more, open your heart more, and like understand things differently. And subhanAllah, as Imam al-Busiri says, جَاءَ النَّبِيُّونَ بِالْآيَاتِ فَانْصَرَمَتْ وَجِئْتَنَا بِجَدِيدٍ غَيْرِ مُنْصَرِمِ that this Qur'an is غير منصرم. It doesn't expire. It's like there is no expiry date on it. On its ayat, on its meaning. Ayatuhu kullama qala al-mada jududun. Its verses with time just become fresher. Yazeenuhunna jalalun itqi wal qidami. They don't lose their genuinity and their originality and they don't decrease in their beauty and their, and, and their newness. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam. We'll give you a Maghrib break.